Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Hey, welcome to the show. It's Monday. It's July 27th. And we're talking cancel culture today. Uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by patrons like WC and Karen, Pamela, Trent, Eric, Dustin, Bob, Anamorpher, and uh, Tavis, and Lisbeth, and Larry, and Sarah, and Barry. I appreciate all the support. I could not do the show without you, as well as Lee and Jeff. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, everybody helping out to uh, literally make the show possible. And by the way, if you become a patron of the show, uh, you can uh, join up with the live streams every Thursday night that we do. Um, all righty. So a taxonomy of fear. This was a piece written by Emily Yoff. She is a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a member of uh, the uh, persuasion community. It's that I'm not like that's not like a, a new moniker that you have to learn about like a I don't know a demographic group of Americans. It's it's literally like a website called Persuasion dot Community, and uh, so you have a bunch of these uh, sort of like minded people who believe in free speech and engaging in debate, and uh, they do have a subscription model, but they do a lot of stuff that's for free as well. And it's Persuasion dot Community, which is weird because I didn't know there was anything other than like dot com dot org or whatever, but. At any rate, uh, Persuasion.Community, she's on their board of advisors, but she is no fan of Donald Trump. She's of the left. And so uh, uh, that's why. And I, and I, by the way, I do find um, these people, I do seek them out, these people of the left uh, who have a problem with this cancel culture. And folks on the right, we're aware of this, right? We've been aware of this for a very long time. Uh, we've been sort of mocking it when, it's, uh, when it sprang out of the universities. Unfortunately, now it has infected the entire culture writ large, and it is incredibly dangerous. And I believe it's incredibly dangerous. And uh, what you're seeing around the country still, for example, Seattle and Portland and Oakland over this past weekend, uh, I think is a direct result of this kind of coddling of the American mind, as it was referred to uh, by Jonathan Haidt in uh, a book that he wrote recently with uh, Greg Lukianoff. And uh, this uh, or, or it, we also covered it over the years as bulldozer parents, which started as helicopter parents and then became bulldozer parents. Right. They just plow away everything in front of their kids to make it really easy for them. And it sort of gave birth to this idea that uh, any kind of a challenge or any kind of an obstacle uh, is somehow violence against them. And anybody with a different idea is doing violence against them. And uh, like I said, it's incredibly dangerous, I believe, and it sort of has led us to this point where we are at now. And so Emily Off's piece is called A Taxonomy of Fear, and she says, as more and more topics become too risky to discuss outside of the prevailing orthodoxies, it makes sense to self-censor, feeling unbound only when part of a denunciatory pack. 
right? And you see this all the time on social media. Uh, somebody who would never think to, you know, pile on and say some of these things in person, right, to your face, but uh, you get a, a pack of anonymous trolls going and they're all attacking somebody and they are more than happy to uh, join in the echo chamber and amplify uh, their message. Institutions, she says, are supposed to be guardians of, of free expression academia and journalism in particular, they're becoming enforcers of conformity. Campuses have bureaucracies that routinely undermine free speech and due process. Now these practices are breaching the Ivy Wall. They are coming to a high school or corporate HR office near you. The cultural rules around hot-button issues are ever-expanding. She says it's as if a daily script goes out describing what's acceptable, and if you flub a line, uh, or you don't even know the script exists, which I actually saw this morning. There was a guy who did some comic book art, and he's not even on Twitter. He doesn't do any social media. He's just an artist, and he did some comic book art for some group, and uh, he got dogpiled, and he's burying, uh, believe, his child, and his he's getting phone calls from all of his publishers and stuff, like, how dare you side with the racists and all this stuff. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't do anything like that. And then the guy who who whipped up the mob, who was also a uh, an artist, I would submit a competitor <clears throat> who just happened to do it to him, says, oh, I talked with him. And he didn't even know who these bad guys were, so we're all good. No, you're not all good. You destroyed memories that this guy was otherwise going to have. Um, anyway, the... Uh, the, the piece continues, naturally, people are deciding the best course is to shut up. It makes sense to be part of the silenced majority when the price you pay for an errant tweet or remark can be the end of your livelihood. We're actually going to talk in a minute with Emily Eeks. She is uh, a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute that finds about two-thirds of Americans say they have political views that they are afraid to share. Yeah. Um, James Bennett. We're going to get into James Bennett and uh, this cancel culture and how it sort of ripped through the newsrooms, um, because that's really where I think a lot of people began to take notice in journalism, something that we uh, in talk radio and conservative media, we've been noticing for a very long time. And a lot of the journalists that have been playing this cancel culture game against conservatives are now starting to be eaten alive by the monster that they've created. And there is a certain amount of, yes, there's a certain amount of satisfaction that folks on the right probably will see and feel uh, in watching this all unfold. But it's still incredibly dangerous. And um, I like I don't care. I saw Brett Weinstein, who was a professor of Evergreen College. He was actually one of the first, uh, he and his wife, they were like the first to fall to this cancel culture on a campus. And um, they're actually out in Portland. And uh, he said something in one of his podcasts the other day. He's at, uh, he does a podcast called Dark Horse. And he said, I don't care when people realize it. I don't care, like, the, I don't require an apology or anything. I just welcome them to the fold because as long as you recognize the problem, then you're an ally. And if you don't recognize the problem, as a lot of people on the left still are pretending cancel culture doesn't exist, that this isn't a weaponization of our discourse, right? They're just pretending that it's all just, oh, you know, people said something bad and so that's got to have ramifications. 
although they go far beyond. So like, like, cause now you start to get into degrees of, uh, ramifications and punishment. So does a tweet from a person who is now 25 when they were 15 years old, they sent out a tweet that was insensitive or stupid, or maybe the times changed. And now the word that the person used is no longer an acceptable word. And, uh, now that person, what doesn't it ever get to work again? Right. They're, they're just not allowed to participate in, in society. Is that the way we go? Or is it only for certain people, certain politics, right? There are a lot of questions, a lot of questions. People are living in fear now of expressing themselves. Now, I'll tell you, one way to uh, alleviate the fear of COVID-19 in your workplace is to get yourself the Karcher Misting System. It is rentable at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Uh, the, the Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant and General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. This is your source for the misting system. And this is good for not just your home, but your businesses, right? If you're a realtor, you want to do some uh, showings. Maybe you're a property or apartment manager. You have some communal areas, venue operators, schools, childcare facilities, um, hair salons, places of worship, basically everywhere, everywhere. You need the Karcher Mister from General Equipment Rental. So you go down to General Equipment, you rent it for half a day, you um, you sanitize and disinfect your whole place, and then all you need to do for like the next week is just kind of spot clean the area wherever people tend to congregate and use the most. You just spot clean and then everything else you don't have to worry about for a week. It's safe for kids and pets and food contact services. It uses an all-in-one hospital-grade EPA-approved germicidal disinfectant sanitizer and deodorizer, right? It kills 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, including the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. You don't have to uh, rinse it off afterwards. It's hypoallergenic. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's 100% biodegradable. It almost sounds too good to be true. It's on four independent wheels. It's like the size of a shop vac. It's cordless. You roll it around. You spray everything down, and you're done. Awesome. General Equipment Rental, family-owned and operated for three generations. They're in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. They meet all of your equipment rental needs, by the way. They, they have it all, uh, earth moving, uh, construction, lawn and garden, whatever the project, whether you're a homeowner or you're like a general contractor, um, you're doing some projects, you're a handyman, they've got you covered. They are also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. All right. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. And if you go to generalrents.com slash Pete, you'll get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings, a retail value of $15. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. And think outside your toolbox. A new Cato National Survey finds that self-censorship is on the rise in the United States, which is uh, kind of frightening, some of these findings. And joining me now is Emily Eakins. She's a research fellow and the director of polling at the Cato Institute. And uh, thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate you making some time today. Thank you for having me. Sure. So uh, first off, the top line of this uh, uh, of this survey, 62% of Americans uh, say that what they, they don't feel comfortable talking about their political opinions with other people. Does that like cover like at work, at, uh, I don't know, in social events, just anywhere? 
Yes. Well, the way we asked the question was we asked about the political climate these days. And does the political climate these days um, prevent people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive? Um, And to that, we found that 62 percent of Americans agreed that they felt like they personally uh, were prevented from saying things because of the political climate. So that could mean at work, that could mean uh, among friends or on social media. It can it's pretty open as to what that actually, you know, where exactly people feel censored, but it seems probably pervasive. Was that surprising that it was that high? Well, it is surprising, um, but just a couple of years ago, it was 58%. And so we've actually seen it rise a little bit, and it's risen more among people on the you know, on the left side of the political spectrum. So people who are, if you want, you know, you might describe them as like socially progressive, you know, staunch progressives. Um, they've become 12 percentage points more likely to say that they feel like they can't share their views. Um, and centrist liberals feel the same way. Um, if you take everyone together, you've got majorities of um, centrist liberals, moderates, and conservatives all feeling that they cannot say what they believe because of the political climate right now. And the only group that feels like they can share their opinions are people who identify as very liberal or progressive. Um, So that's the only group who feels comfortable. But even they, 42% said no. Honestly, if you've been on Facebook, this really confirms (laughs) what I've experienced, at least, uh, and Twitter especially, it seems like. Um, So the the partisan breakdown I thought was interesting. You just mentioned that the uh, people who are left of center, they're sort of catching up to where people right of center have felt (laughs) for a while, it seems like. Uh, perhaps, yes. Um, and I think that that is suggestive that it's not just like one set of views that are now no longer considered permissible in public dialogue, but perhaps the wide range of views um, that people have that increasingly all of a sudden they're learning that are you know suddenly unacceptable to be shared. And something that's important to keep in mind is it's not just, you know, a certain set of views that people are afraid to share. But now people are starting to feel like they don't even want to get close to the boundaries at all. And so that means they're just going to, there is going to have a chilling effect where people are going to want to share less and less for fear that the boundary has shifted quite quickly and they were unaware and they didn't want to, you know, you know, cross that boundary. Yeah. Which I acknowledge uh, that I, uh, I'm probably not a good person to uh, try to sympathize with this feeling because I've never had a job where I had to worry about that. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Uh, And so it seems like uh, there are a lot of people that are just really, really afraid everywhere they go. And I could not imagine having to live like that, wondering if, uh, you know, you say something wrong, like you said, the boundary shifts like one day and all of a sudden y- what you thought was OK to say now suddenly isn't OK to say. Although I did find it interesting, the racial breakdown of this feeling, uh, it seems like African-Americans not really uh, well, I mean, to a lesser extent, but they're not really self-censoring like Latinos and whites are. Uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, finding as well. Actually, didn't interpret it quite quite that way. You know, to be you know, given the data that we got, fifty percent about excuse me, about half of African Americans feel like they cannot say what they believe because the political environment, because of the political climate these days. And then about two thirds of white, um, Latino, and Asian Americans agreed. So there is a slight difference there, 
But still, you've got like half to two thirds across racial groups who feel like they can't share their views, which suggests that the views that they have that they feel like they can't say are not just necessarily about about race or, or immigration or something like that, but the, it's a wide range of views. I mean, a survey that we conducted a couple of years ago at the Cato Institute, um, we asked people if a speaker who says each of the following things should be allowed to speak on a, on a university campus, and then we, then we gave specifics. Um, because if you just give it in the abstract, people say, yes, I believe in free speech. People should say whatever they want to say. Yeah. Um, but then you give them specifics and they say, oh, no, no, not that. <laughs> and on this list, um, one of the things was, um, should a speaker be allowed to speak who is, criti- you know, who, who criticizes and is disrespectful of the police? 50% of Americans said no. And then the other side was, uh, uh, should a speaker be allowed to speak who believes that policing practices today are justified? Um, so they're defending the police. Yeah. Should that speaker be allowed to speak? You got 50% who said no to that. Now, they're not the same people, right? Those are different people who are saying no. Right. Um, but how, tell me how we're supposed to have um, a conversation that's productive about how to um, have productive and effective policing in the United States when we are not allowed to, one, defend or criticize the police. (laughs) (laughs) You basically shut down all debate. Right, and uh, particularly at this moment in time, when this is what we are told is required right now, that we need to have this discussion, yet nobody is allowed to discuss it. So I'm I'm not clear how we go about doing that. Um, Kind of self-defeating. So I guess... So I, I guess... I was looking at this and looking at the numbers and it says 65 and 64% of Latinos and whites respectively, uh, they self-censor and 49% of African Americans self-censor, uh, censor rather. And so you're saying that, that that spread between essentially 50 to two thirds, that's, that's not, I don't want to say, uh, cause I know this is statistics. So I know there's a whole vocabulary set around it, but like that, but that's significant, right? I mean, that you're saying that it's not really that big of a spread. I mean, it might be, there might be a couple percentage points of difference. But yeah. my point is, is that more generally, if you take a, you know, you have a big room of people and you say that half of them to two thirds of them all feel like they can't be honest with you and authentic with you about how they feel, you know, how is a democracy supposed to work? And so if maybe one group is like slightly more likely than another, um, you know, sure, that, that could be the case. But I think that that misses the broader point that Americans from all different backgrounds and a political persuasion feel like the, the climate today has caused them to self-censor. And the question that I think this raises is how does a free and democratic society operate when people feel afraid to participate? Now, you can vote, and that's done in private, but that's not the only way that people participate in a democratic society. You can contribute your time or money if you have um, you know, the resources available towards causes or candidates that you express publicly, verbally to your friends and neighbors how you feel about politics. Now, there's a time and a place, and we want to, be, we want to try to be polite and not unnecessarily provoke and be offensive, right? Um, but people feel perhaps that they can't even do that in this environment. And it's not just one group. It seems pervasive. Right. You, you mentioned in this um, in the results here, rich, poor, old, young, religious, non-religious. It's basically everybody. Um, and uh, one of the and so I wonder, is this why some of the the polling that we saw and, and, and maybe the, I hear that uh, people are afraid to to tell 
pollsters what they think about, for example, Donald Trump. They're afraid to say that they would vote for him. And so the polling is off somehow. Does this is this, I don't know, a piece of evidence that would lend that theory some credibility? It's certainly possible that that's going on. I wouldn't count on that alone because a lot of these polls are conducted online. And thus, you mm. know, that's different than a live telephone interview. Now, let's say all the, all the polls are conducted on the telephone where, you know, a live human being is calling you on the phone and saying, who do you plan to vote for? And you have to tell them. Um, certainly, you know, academic studies have shown people being a little bit less open and honest with telephone interviewers on sensitive subjects. Hmm. But a lot of these polls are also conducted online, which means it's private. You know, people aren't watching you. Uh, perhaps there's a little bit of self-censorship in that people just feel like maybe it could get out. I, I don't know. I think it's less likely um, but it's certainly possible. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things I found particularly terrifying, um, one of the results here, uh, that the survey found many Americans think that a person's private political donations should impact their employment. And I kept thinking of what Brendan Ike, right, the guy who uh, developed the Firefox browser, and they and he donated money to. I think it was the Prop 8 campaign out in California. And then like years later, they they find out he donated money and he's out like that's it. And like this is apparently a more pervasive attitude than I thought it was. Actually, that's kind of scary. Um, yeah, I guess it depends on where you sit for this. To, you know, is this surprising? Is this low or high? Um, so it seems high to you. It actually seems lower to me oh. in part because, you know, you're going as far back as you're going as far back as Brandon Ike, but I feel like you only have to go as far back as last week Yeah. Um, to kind of <laughs> perhaps not something as specific as who donated money, but people that have posted um, privately on their social media pages, their political views, all of them getting hauled into the HR department and getting fired from their jobs or potentially having their admissions rescinded for universities. Um, so, so it kind of, this question is going on beyond just, you know, if you actually use money, it's, it's like, should your private political expression impact you at work? And what we found is 31% of Americans think that Trump donors should be fired from their jobs and 22% um, of people who donate to Biden should be fired from their jobs. So you've got a big chunk there, but what really surprised me is let's let's drill down and look, and look at how the how partisans feel about this. Yeah, fifty percent, fifty percent of strong liberals think that people that a business executive who donates um, personally to Donald Trump should be fired from their job. Fifty percent, and then if you flip that over, what about staunch conservatives? Thirty six percent think that someone who gives to Joe Biden should be fired from their job. So it, it's both ways. Cancel culture goes both ways, but it is a little bit more lopsided where Trump supporters are more likely to run into trouble with their HR department. Right. And this has also borne out their fears as well, it seems, uh, particularly among Republicans who have higher education degrees. They're more worried about uh, uh, about getting impacted by you know their speech uh, at work than, say, uh, than Democrats or even Republicans that have that don't have those degrees. Right. We found a fascinating trend in the data. And I wish like I wish over radio we could like show a chart. But right. we can't. So I'll just try my best <laughs> to describe it. So if you just take, you know, Democrats and Republicans and you look at them who, you know, those who have attended high school, 
um, then maybe you've attended some college classes that haven't finished, and then you take people who have graduated from college and then postgraduates, okay? If you look at those groups, as Republicans go from having a college degree to some college, as soon as those have, as soon as Republicans have college degrees or postgraduate degrees, the number who feel like they could get fired from their jobs skyrockets. Um, if they voted for for Trump. So it goes like, um, if you look at Republicans with post-grad degrees, 60%, 60% feel like um, they, um, they're worried about losing their job or missing out on job opportunities if their political opinions become became known yeah. compared to only about a quarter of, um, of Republicans who have college or have high school diplomas. Now, Democrats, we didn't see that shift. And so I think there's two things, perhaps, that we're observing there. One is that um, when Republicans go to universities, we know through, you know, various studies that universities, that the faculty that teach and the administrators there um, largely um, are left of center or, or further left, right? Um, and so Republicans learn that their views are, you know, not acceptable. And then they go to work for, you know, Fortune 500 companies, they're, they're professors, lawyers, um, people that work in tech, and, you know, those types of, the types of jobs that you get with those types of degrees, and they discover that their views are, will not be tolerated. Um, whereas it seems like jobs that don't require college degrees, they're just not so polarized. They're not so political. So Democrats and Republicans who, uh, who um, are not working in those types of fields, they seem to just not be as um, worried that their political views impact them at work. And finally, uh, you said uh, a particularly surprising finding that Americans who have these concerns are somewhat more likely to support the firing of Biden or Trump donors, <laughs> which yeah, I know it's bizarre. Go ahead. Explain this. Oh, I can't. I, <laughs> it, it seems like so just to be clear, many of the people who themselves were worried about getting fired or missing out on job opportunities because of their views were also more likely to support firing their political opponents. So it almost seems like People get involved in this world, and it goes both ways. They they want to punish, and they fear being punished. Um, and it's kind of a strange thing that that certainly doesn't mean everyone feels that way. It's just you're a little bit more likely. Yeah. Well, I guess it's because it's that's what they would do. So they're afraid of it happening to them. I guess I don't know. That's uh, it's a bizarre finding, but it's Perhaps. really valuable research. I appreciate you spending some time with me, Emily Eakins from the Cato Institute. She's the director of polling and a research fellow. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. All righty, and if you are researching a new mattress, just stop because I can tell you where to go. It's mattressmanstores.com. Take a look at their inventory, or even better, go to their store, any one of the four stores in the Asheville area. So you got Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. By the way, they do ship nationwide. They have local five-star delivery service and a 120-day comfort guarantee. But the sleep consultants at Mattress Man will uh, help you pick the right mattress for you because everybody sleeps differently, and different mattresses support people differently. Uh, depending on their sleep position. I didn't know this before uh, I went to Mattress Man. But uh, they will help you pick the right mattress for you. And now it's really the great time to go and uh, get yourself a mattress. First, you have the 000 deal, which is zero down, 0% 
APR financing, so up to 24 months interest-free, and zero payments for 90 days. They also have, for $399, a Queen Gel Memory Foam Mattress. Talk about a hot deal to keep you cool, right? Also, free bedding bundles, including sheets, protectors, and pillows, all with the purchase of select mattresses. Uh, And remember, they have the Biltmore line from Restonic. This is made in Fayetteville, and these are the mattresses at the Biltmore Inn and the hotel. So go to Mattress Man, tell them you heard it here, and um, you can also go to their website, mattressmanstores.com. They have all the mattresses. They've got inner spring, pillow top, natural latex, memory foam. They've got adjustable bases. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Uh, This story out of the New York Times about James Bennett. his resignation from his position as the editorial page editor at the New York Times. Uh, This became sort of the, uh, I think, the story that that launched a lot of this into the public uh, consciousness, if they weren't already aware of it. I think a lot of people on the left uh, became frightened by what they saw unfolding at the New York Times, the so-called uh, you know paper of record. Bennett was pressured to depart after he ran an op-ed that was written by Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, whose argument in this op-ed was that the military should be used to respond to riots. Okay, this was Tom Cotton's position. Now you can agree with that position, or you can disagree with that position. Uh, but Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed asserting this, and people went nuts. And when I say people, I mean the staff at the New York Times. And at first, the uh, the publisher of the paper, A. G. Solzberger, uh, publicly expressed support for the decision to run the op-ed. But then that changed after black employees asserted not just that Cotton's argument was morally repugnant or that he failed to make it in a way that met the Times' standard. No, they said that his piece threatened their lives. They said that, yeah, this is the uh, 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 speech is violence. Absurdity. Speech is not violence unless it is an actual threat like that prompts somebody or a call and urging that says go kill these people and then they go kill these people because they're acting on your orders. Uh, But even then, the violence is the act. Speech is not violence. Okay, I understand that it's all hyperbolic and everybody feels all empowered when they say, you know, you're doing violence to this thing. You know, you're not doing violence unless you're actually committing violence. Okay, Uh, and I know I might be a stickler for words in this day and age when words meaning changes weekly, it seems. But this is what the employee said, quote, running this op ed puts black New York Times staff in danger. And then they went to Twitter and they spread all of these, uh, all this message around on the Twitter sphere. The language used by the Times staffers is indicative of a wider trend, writes Emily Yoff. Again, at, she's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a member of the Persuasions uh, Board of Advisors. And uh, she says this is indicative of the wider trend in the book The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Uh, they describe the recent emergence and rapid spread on college campuses of what they call safetyism. We talked about this years ago on the radio show when they wrote the book. Um, safetyism. It's a view that equates emotional discomfort with physical danger. Okay. It, to me, it's insanity. 
it's a symptom of insanity. That's just me. That's my non-clinical observation, right? I just think that this is insane, that you have to feel safe and your safety um, is determined by something that somebody says in a policy position in an op-ed in the New York Times, okay? Safetyism, they write, teaches students to, quote, see words as violence and interpret ideas and speakers as safe versus dangerous. Confronted with words and ideas or decisions they dislike, a growing number of people are asserting that they are in danger of suffering psychological or even bodily harm. But when one party asserts that a debate threatens their very well-being, it's kind of hard to deliberate on policy or topics like race and gender, right? The result is a narrowing of the space for public discussion and an inability to teach uh, ever more ideas and books. Now, this is uh, like a lot of folks on the left, they look at this and they say, oh, well, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is, aren't they aware that this is going to limit speech? Like, yes, they are. In fact, that's the point. If you can limit the speech and everybody's afraid of what you're going to do to them if they speak up against what you believe, then if you're in power, you get to set the terms. You get to set the rules, right? Because no one's going to ob object. It's Which was fascinating, too, about like the in the, uh, the Cato polling, right? The, the uber lefties, they're all like, I don't have any problem expressing my opinion, right? <laughs> like more than any other group. And if you've been on social media, you know this to be true. They're the ones who are all over the place. Like, this is what I believe. Don't at me. I don't want to hear from you. If you if you don't believe this, then just unfollow me. I don't want to hear from you. Those are all my friends that are of the left. That's what they say. Right? People on the right, I see them like doing battle and arguing and stuff. Not all the time. I know, I know. I'm, I'm generalizing here. Here's another one. Harvard Law Professor Jeannie Suk Gerson chronicled in the New York, uh, the, the uh, New Yorker, that law professors have now found it increasingly difficult to, te uh, to teach rape law because some students consider the subject too disturbing. Quote, student organizations representing women's interests now routinely advise students that they should not feel pressured to attend or participate in class sessions that focus on the law of sexual violence and which might therefore be traumatic. Some students have even suggested that rape law should not be taught because of its potential to cause distress. Well, who suffers if no lawyers know what the law is when it comes to rape? Right? Who gets victimized again? The victims, rape survivors. This is what I mean. This is insanity. These people are not dealing uh, in reality. They're, they're not living in the real world. Which, by the way, a lot of people accuse Stacey Redman of, of, of uh, his photos not depicting the real world because they're so darn gorgeous, for real. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains that is so amazing that you're like, this can't be real, right? You just can't even look away. That was me when I first saw Stacey Redman's work. And a lot of people uh, see this and they think the same thing. Go to redrockphotonc.com. Stacey's from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades. And uh, he got into this because he was working a lot and he wasn't really enjoying the work so much. And his daughter was like, Dad, why are you always working? And 
it kind of broke his heart. And he was like, you know what? Life's too short for this. I'm going to spend my time with my family. I'm going to chase my dream. And he's been making it work now for years. Uh, his work is brilliant. It is striking. And it's easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Redrockphotonc.com. And use the promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. So the New York Times uh, brouhaha also then precipitates this open letter in Harper's uh, magazine. And we covered that a couple of weeks ago and some of the fallout. We're going to circle back around on that in a couple days, too. Uh, when I get to it, when I get to it, because I've been accumulating a lot of stuff that's connected to that. But the stuff of social and economic life, right, cooperation, creativity, innovation, our lives, our society is interdependent with everybody else, and it requires, therefore, risk and trust. Okay, if, if, if we can't trust people, think about this, right? At a most basic level, if you can't trust somebody to not kill you when you walk out your front door, are you ever walking out your front door? Like, what kind of a society does that look like, right? That's like this is what is so amazing watching the the these uh, communists antifa thugs out in Portland is that and, and Seattle uh, like what they're what they're trying to enact is Mogadishu, right? The very thing that the left always attacks the right for wanting. Oh, what are you like? No government. You just want like Mogadishu, right? No, that's not a philosophy that the right espouses. But that's what you guys are going to get if. Like, people just let you have your way and burn down all the federal courthouses with all the people inside, which is really what they want, and why can't we just let them have it? I don't understand. We just want to torch these buildings and kill a bunch of federal employees inside. What's the harm? I don't understand why people are reacting like this. So uh, we need to have trust in our fellow citizens in order for this experiment, for this economy and everything to work, right? For our institutions to function and to function well, Emily Off writes, we have to believe that people working or learning alongside us are generally decent until shown otherwise. And if wariness and suspicion are now our default attitudes, and if each of us knows that one misunderstood word or action might be used against us, even if it was motivated with the best of intentions, right, then we're not going to need a virus to keep us socially distanced. Okay? The push to turn uncomfortable personal interactions into officially reportable incidents all began on campus, she says. And she's exactly right. Has a long history. We've been documenting it for over a decade. Campusreform.org, for example. This is one of the things that they focus on. They specialize in. This is the conservatives were the first targets of this cancel culture, and they've been sounding the alarm for years. And now it's infecting and affecting the left. It's now they're now eating their own because you're never woke enough for the woke mob. Ever. Ever. You will never be woke enough. Matt Iglesias from Vox.com, one of the founders of Vox, is getting crap because he signed the Harper's letter. Now, this point of view is becoming entrenched at the workplace, too. For example, upon her appointment, Kathleen Kingsbury became the New York Times acting editorial page editor when they fired James Bennett, um, or he resigned. Um, she told the newspaper staff that anybody who saw, quote, any piece of opinion journalism including headlines or social posts or photos or you name it, she said, that gives you the slightest pause, please call or text me immediately. They, this infantilization has to stop, okay? People need to grow the F up. There are going to be people who say things that you don't like. That is life. 
People are going to do things that you don't like. That is life. It is not a personal, violent act against you for somebody to write an op-ed. Unless that op-ed is calling for a lot of people to come and kill you, it's not violent speech. There's, there's no violence occurring. It's simply a different idea. What have we been saying for years, right? Unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. And that's exactly what's occurring on the left. They have these ideas, and now, unable to defend them, they're just going to browbeat everybody into submission because everyone is so afraid of being called a racist. So in the coddling of the American mind by Lukianov and Haidt, they say life in call-out culture requires constant vigilance, fear, and self-censorship. But shaming somebody, especially when done publicly as part of a group, can award you status. I've said this many, many times over the years as well, that uh, people gain credibility, they gain points, they gain purchase by making the accusations. This is life in Salem witchified America. This is what it looks like. In order to keep the mob off of you, you accuse somebody else of doing something and you get more power by being victimized by some perceived slight. And every day offers new evidence of people that go off the deep end because somebody, what, in Gaston County, North Carolina, a woman goes into some ice cream shop and one of the employees rolls their eyes at her or something, and now you've got protests going on and violence enacted out in front of this, uh, out in front of this ice cream shop. You got people attacking uh, restaurant employees and such businesses being, well, that's just being looted because they're anarchists and communists, but anyway, like, you get credibility, you get status by being the, quote, victim, and then you get to do whatever you want. Then you get to victimize other people and not be called the villain, right? That's how this all works. This cancel culture works. It's really, really, really bad stuff. Now, that describes your website, really bad stuff. Then you know how important it is. got to have a good website, right? Now more than ever. You want it to turn up, uh, uh, turn up in search results, and you need it to look professional and user-friendly. You don't want it to look like, you know, some Antifa mob just destroyed it, okay? So, I understand you know your business, but you might not know a lot about web design and maintenance. But my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design does. Great design can solve a lot of your site's problems. Professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics and photos. He can build out an online store for you, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He even does logos. He did mine. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That is SchaeferSmith.com. All right. So some on the left still claim that cancel culture isn't even real. It doesn't exist. Mass firings, they say, are not taking place. It's only a few people, and they probably deserved it. You know, a couple people have lost some jobs, but, you know, they said something bad. Ross Doubthat at uh, New York Times, he says, look, the goal is not to punish everybody or even very many somebodies, right? The goal here is to shame or scare just enough people to make everybody else conform. That's how this works. It's how it has worked in every totalitarian state ever ever tried right this is how it works and so dread settles in challenging books don't get taught deep conversations are not to be had friendships are not formed classmates and colleagues all eye each other with suspicion thomas chatterton williams wrote quote a generation unable or disinclined to engage with ideas and interlocutors that make them uncomfortable open the door accessible from both the left and the right 
to various forms of authoritarianism. And he's exactly right. One of the few things that President Trump and President Obama actually agree on is this cancel culture. Ryan Lizza wrote about this at Politico the other day. He said there is significant disagreement about what cancel culture is or even whether it exists. The Politico survey done by Morning Consult used a neutral definition of cancel culture adapted from Dictionary.com, which is, quote, the practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media uh, in the form of group shaming, right? And a plurality of Americans, 46%, believe that cancel culture has, quote, gone too far. About a quarter of Americans, many of whom uh, maybe are offline, uh, I don't know, but they say they didn't know or had no opinion on the matter. A quarter of Americans don't even know this is going on. When they are removed from the results, a clear majority across almost every demographic category says cancel culture has gone too far. Right. So if you pull out the 25 percent, they don't know what's going on. Everybody else, it's obvious what's going on. Okay, And uh, the people who are engaging in this cancel culture might not be a very large group, by the way, but it doesn't take a large group in a society in order to completely destroy or upend that society. 27% of voters said cancel culture had a somewhat positive or very positive impact on society. That is terrifying. 27%. But half said it had a somewhat negative or very negative impact. While online shaming may seem like a major preoccupation for the public if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, only 40% of voters say they have participated in cancel culture and only 1 in 10 say they participate often. I do kind of wonder about that, though. Is anybody really going to admit to participating in this kind of egregious behavior (laughs) oh yeah please yeah yeah absolutely i i want everybody to know that this is what i've been doing online um half of democrats this is also a key finding from this poll it appears to be more of a liberal pursuit shocking half of democrats have said uh They've shared their dislike of a public figure on social media after they did something objectionable, while only one third of Republicans say they have. And again, another shocker here. Age is one of the most reliable predictors of one's views. Members of Generation Z are the most sympathetic to punishing people or institutions over offensive views, followed closely by millennials while Gen Xers, the best generation, as well as baby boomers, have the strongest antipathy towards it. Cancel culture is driven by young voters. A majority, 55%, a majority of voters between 18 and 34 say they have taken part in cancel culture, while only a third of voters over the age of 65 say they have joined a social media pylon. The poll also suggests, by the way, that the public at large is more forgiving than the gladiators on social media. (gasps) No, really. When asked about controversial or offensive statements from public figures, the longer ago the comment was made, the less likely it mattered. And I think that shows the wisdom of years. Here's some wisdom for you as well. If you're buying or selling a home, call Rowena Patton, number 333-4483. Website, mountainhomehunt.com, okay? She's awesome. She's a great real estate agent. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina, and she's the only agent that I would uh, use to buy or sell a house. Christy and I are actually getting ready to do this very thing. We've already called Rowena uh, because we believe in her. 
And, uh, I mean, heck, she's awesome. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the state. So uh, go to her website, mountainhomehunt.com. 333-4483 is the phone number. And uh, start packing. So this Politico piece by Ryan Lizza says that the debate over cancel culture has recently intersected with discussions about race and diversity that are taking place inside many American institutions, including major newsrooms. He mentions the New York Times debacle. Um, And then he says one of Bennett's, this editor that was pushed out, James Bennett, uh, one of his right-leaning but anti-Trump writers, Barry Weiss, left this month after she, what she described in a fiery resignation letter as forays into wrong think uh, that have made the subject, uh, made her the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with her views. She decried how the New York Times has allowed Twitter to become its ultimate editor. And she is correct, by the way. Last week, the right-leaning but anti-Trump journalist Andrew Sullivan parted ways with Vox Media's New York Magazine after years of friction between him and the publication's younger and more left-leaning staffers. A critical mass of the staff and management at New York Magazine and Vox Media no longer want to associate with me, he wrote. Now, here's somebody you should be associating with. Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. Now more than ever, you need Old Grouch. Uh, He's got an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies for all kinds of emergencies, uh, from scrapes to gunshot wounds, step-by-step instructions so anybody can follow it, even me. And uh, maybe this helps you avoid a trip to the hospital with all the COVID. Anyway, body armor, all kinds made to NATO specs. These are in-store or over-the-phone purchases only. And he's got face masks. This is really cool. They're made by uh, a local family, veteran family, uh, disabled vet in the area, made from military uh, parachutes. Uh, So they're lightweight, they're soft, and then they use the parachute cords for the ear bands and stuff. Uh, Also, he's got the pre-ban old-school steel gas cans, like the good ones, before GovCo got involved with regulating them. Uh, Also, he's got, obviously, tons of real U.S. military surplus for more than three decades. Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street, downtown Clyde. Yes, the shop is open Monday through Saturday. Uh, It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Now, Matt Taibbi is a longtime Rolling Stone writer who also has an independent platform at Substack. And he said that uh, the institutions need an intellectual environment with a wide enough spectrum of views to sometimes allow for bad and, yes, even terrible arguments to be made. Look, I, I was in a newsroom for years. There were some really terrible arguments that I heard in that newsroom. Yes, on occasion, some of them were mine, but mostly it was the people I was arguing against. One of the reasons I took up this subject, he said in an interview, is that I have a lot of discussions with people who work in the media who in the last few months have said they are afraid to pitch a certain kind of story because they don't want it to get around the newsroom, that they're interested in a certain topic because they might end up on the radar of people in the union or those who are very politically engaged in the newsroom. He gave the example of a colleague who wanted to do a story about a pharmacy in a small town that was damaged during protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, and it resulted in the sick and the elderly unable to fill prescriptions. Okay, I have talked about this for years. This is a clear example of what it is I've been uh, talking about. So do you hear the story about the pharmacy? that now is no longer able to fulfill prescriptions for the sick and the elderly, and then those people die, 
right? Or, okay, let's just say they have complications. They, they don't live their healthiest life. They're in pain or something, and it takes them a while. But they were at the very least inconvenienced to some degree. At, and we're risking death, right? Um, do you hear that story? Have you seen that story? No, you do not. And the reason why you don't see the story is because people in newsrooms are afraid to pitch the story. The bias is not just in the stories that are selected, it's in the stories that are not. It's the stories that are never pitched. This is why I've been preaching for years, ever since I've gotten into this line of work. It is that newsrooms need ideological diversity. It is paramount. You have to have people in the newsroom so they pursue different stories. Because I think that's a heck of a story. I would like to know that. If I'm a local community journalist, I would want to go out and talk to a a local shop owner about what it is that they experienced after some rioters and looters came and destroyed their business. Uh, You know, well, COVID about killed us, and now these rioters are going to, you know, put us under. And is that a is that a valuable story for the local community to hear? I'd say yes. I'd say it checks the box next to the question of is it newsworthy. And what Taibi is saying is that people aren't even pitching it because they're afraid that they're going to pop up on the radar. He says they may end up on the radar of people in the union or those who are very politically engaged in the newsroom. Which is weird because we have heard for a very long time that reporters don't have opinions like this. Reporters don't engage in any kind of political activity like this. Yet here is Taibi saying there are people in the newsroom that are, quote, politically engaged. Then there is a staff writer, Osita Nuavenu, Nuanevu, a staff writer at the New Republic, disagrees, says the backlash is all overblown. The fundamental ideas behind these frightened terms are more popular than the terms themselves. He says, even though free speech is protected, people should expect social consequences for expressing unpopular opinions in public. The debate over cancel culture in his view, is more about power. One person's online mob is another person's vehicle to hold someone accountable. What we're seeing described as cancel culture isn't so much a new kind of behavior, but a new set of actors in our political discourse who get to say what isn't okay. You know, young people, African-Americans, transgender people, they now have the power to have their voices heard, and everyone thinks there are lines. The question is, where are those lines, and who gets to draw them? And of course, the answer to that question is not you. The answer to that question is this guy. The answer is the authoritarian left. That's who wants to draw the new lines. That's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast. Do me a favor. Thanks so much. And leave it a positive review, thumbs up or five stars, whatever. And consider becoming a patron of the program. You get cool stuff, exclusive content. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for the support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.